Sermon is entitled, David's Prayers in the Presence of His Enemies. Sixty-six battles David fought. Sixty-six times he won. There are two battles that he fought that are more poignant by far than any other battle he ever was in. The one battle is etched in the words of this week's lesson, the seventh week study of prayer. This battle, which prompts the writing of Psalm 5, is a battle against his own son Absalom. Second Kings 14 through 18 is the story. Absalom is the handsomest of men, and such charisma does he have that he beckons individuals away from King David's council. And he goes into the circle of David's friends. And with his charisma and with his good looks and with the flowery nature of his words, he deceives them. And he says to them, my father is too old. And my father has committed that sin with David with Bathsheba and Uriah, my father no longer fit to be the king. And not only does Absalom want to remove his father from the palace, but he wants his father dead. And when David finds out that 40 men have surrounded Absalom with the words of advice and the encouragement to do this, his heart is shattered. Not so much at the deceit of his friends, but at the viciousness and cruelty of of his own son. Joab says, let us go against him. He has but 40 men. We have thousands. Let us go against him. And David says, I know that we can defeat him, but he's my son. I do not want his blood on my hands. I want his blood on no one's hands. I want his life spared, Joab. If you come in battle against him, I want his life spared. You know the end of the story, Second Kings 18. Absalom's hair is caught in the branch of a tree, and Joab and his soldiers surround him, and they put an end to his life. And David is so distraught for many months, and finally the prophet comes to him and says, David, your son was evil. He was an agent of Satan. You keep mourning in this way. It appears that you are in favor of your son, not in favor of the people over whom he would have ruled. David actually leaves the palace for a time. He says, I will not fight against my son. And as he's disappeared from the palace, prophet comes up to him and says, David, think this one through. If your son Absalom is so evil, he wants you dead. What is he going to do with your people? The people that you love. You're the prophet, priest, and king. You love these people. Are you going to turn them over to the kingship of Absalom? How many will he slaughter before you come back? And that's all that David needs to hear. Let me read Psalm 5. When he finds out that Absalom wants him dead. Here is his prayer. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider the depth of my sorrow. Listen to my cry for help. I come to you in the morning. I have not slept all night. I come to you in the morning. 
I know you hear my voice, or else I would not be praying to you. In the morning I will lay my request before you, and I wait in expectation for your direction. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil with the wicked like my son Absalom. You cannot dwell in their presence. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You despise those who tell lies. You despise those who are bloodthirsty and deceitful. But I, by your great mercy, I will come into your house. What does he mean? When he begins to pray to God, he enters God's house. He's not talking about the temple. When I begin to pray, I come into your house. Martin Luther said the same thing. When great darkness descends upon me, I enter God's house. He wasn't talking about the castle church. He was talking about opening up God's word. And he was talking about when I pray to you, I enter your house. You and I do the same. David said, I enter your house. In reverence, I bow down toward your holy temple. Lead me because of my enemies. Lead me, make straight your way before me. What does he mean? Let me know what you want me to do. Not a word from Absalom's mouth can be trusted. His heart is filled with destruction and those who follow him. But then listen to the last two verses. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. You surround them with your favor as with the shields. Why was Psalm 46 Luther's favorite next to the 23rd? Because when the great darknesses would come against Martin Luther, similar to King David, Luther's life was one battle after another. When the great darknesses would come towards the end of Psalm 46, very last verse, Be still, Martin Luther. Be still. Calm your hearts. Be still. Come to me in your word. Come to me in prayer. And then you shall know that I am God. Your darkness is not God. The death of your child is not God. Your enemies against you is not God. The threat that you're going to be burned at the stake is not your God. Be still, Martin. Calm your hearts. And know that I am God. For six weeks now we've looked at Abraham and Moses and Daniel and Nehemiah and Ezekiel. And now it's David. And each of them, when we've looked at their prayers to God, were they praying to God when everything was bright and rosy? No. When were they praying to God? When darkness had come into their life. Sixty-six battles David has fought. Sixty-six battles he's won. But there's no battle like this one. This is his son. What shall move the heart of David to pick up? Not the weapon of sword and shield. What shall move the heart of David not to pick up the weapon of the forty mighty men, the navy seals of the day, the gibberim, He shall not go to them for advice. What shall move the heart of David to pick up not the words of wisdom from his captain, Joab, and the mighty army that serves him? 
he shall not go to them. What shall move the heart of David to go to the house of God in prayer? His guide shall be prayer, his peace in the midst of terror shall be prayer. 2,900 years later, we still have the same weapon. It's not going rusty throughout all these centuries. There is no rust on this weapon. It is as powerful as it ever was. Because our enemies have not changed since the time of Adam and Eve. The enemies have not changed. Relationships, health, finances, they have not changed. And the weapon remains for us. And when the choir sings about God's Word being our great heritage, Luther himself said, how can I ever go to God's Word and listen to His promises and not want to immediately respond? And Luther's response whenever he read God's Word was to come to God in prayer. He would never open up God's Word and read it without having a second result occur. And that was a matter of prayer. You love your mom and dad. I pray such was your home life that you love your mom and dad. You can see them. They are visible to you. They will always be a part of your heart. And as they age on this earth, perhaps you draw closer to them as you see a frailty that you have not seen before. You know your mom and dad. You shall always love them. When you hear their voice, it shall always elicit something. You cannot see God. I dare say it's a good thing you cannot see Him. Why? Because He's an invisible force. And if we could see God, it means we could see the invisible forces. And if you saw the invisible forces of evil, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. If you saw the invisible forces of evil, you would be paralyzed with fear. I mean, the good angels appear there in Bethlehem, and when the shepherds see the good angels, they fall down in fear. And when the angel is standing there at the empty tomb, Matthew 18, 6, they are trembling with fear. If the good angels cause us to tremble with fear, imagine if the invisible angels from Satan were visible. Can you imagine what that would do to us? You cannot see God Yet you believe in Him, 1 Peter 1.8. Had the joy of teaching in Carolyn Poe's and Nadine Hoger's classroom, first grade, I believe. <laughs> and I'm talking about God, I'm talking about Jesus, and man, they're all over it. But when I'm talking about the Holy Spirit, uh, there's a question mark in their head. I say to them, can you see the wind? They said, no, you cannot see the wind. I said, how do you know the wind's real? And they said, because we see the leaves blow in the wind, that we see the branches move. And I said, so it is with the Holy Spirit. You cannot see Him. And yet your ability to believe in Jesus comes from Him. You can see your mom and dad keep wrapping them with hugs. You cannot see God. But you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is real. Why doesn't David go to his sword and spear? Why doesn't he go to the Gibberim? Why doesn't he go to Joab? Because he's got a mightier one than them. And that one is God. 
And down on his knees he goes. Forcefully, humbly, hopefully communicating with God, not in sacrifice of animals, not in some act of kindness. He, he doesn't say to God, you know, I think you and I do that perhaps on occasion. David doesn't say to God, you owe me one here. I'm keeping track. Here's what I've done for you, God. You owe me one. I'm coming to you in prayer and I expect you to answer it in the way I want it answered. David realizes how sinful he is. Martin Luther realizes as sinful he is. He said, uh, Luther said at times, I cannot go on my knees to God. I have to lie flat down on the floor with my eyes next to the pavement. David, when he came to God in prayer, he was as humble as one could possibly be, but he was forceful in prayer. He said, God, I know you. I mention it every week. How does he know God? Because he's got the Bible. Thank you very much. It's 900 B.C. God is opening up the waters of the Red Sea in 1500 B.C. David has the Scriptures. He said, God, you opened up the waters 600 years ago. I'm between a rock and a hard place. If I go against my son, I'm going to kill him. If I don't go against my son, he's going to butcher my people alive. I got no way out of this, God. Provide me an answer. The Apostle Paul wrote the most powerful chapter in the New Testament next to 1 Corinthians 15, Romans chapter 8. And 900 years before he wrote Romans chapter 8, David was already writing it, Psalm 23. Apostle Paul wrote, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor demons, nor things present, nor things to come can separate me from a Lord. David had already written that in Psalm 23. I am persuaded that the Lord is my shepherd. I am persuaded that the brown pastures can turn green. I am persuaded that the raging waters can become still. He had already written it. Luther is looking smack dab at Psalm 23 when he's in the Wartburg Castle. Wondering if he's going to be killed when he gets out of there. He's looking at Psalm 23. And he's saying the same thing I dare say when he writes The Mighty Fortress. I'm wondering if he's looking at Psalm 23 when he's writing the words of that powerful hymn. Why does David come to God? He's seen what God has done in the past. And he's seen what God has done in his life. And when he looks at the Bible, when he looks at his life, there is no doubt. I cannot see God. cannot see the wind. But I know he's real. Let me bring you to a second battle. Second, uh, 1 Samuel 23. This battle is not against his son Absalom. This battle is against King Saul. King Saul, at one time a father figure to him, wants him dead. Not a lust for power, but a great jealousy because the people love David so much. First Samuel 23, there are five times in that chapter he prays to God. He's in the forest, and he's protected. Saul is never going to find him in the forest. And he hears that in the village of Keilah, the Philistines have entered the village, and they are massacring the people, and they are burning it to the ground. And when David hears that the people in Keilah, the village, 
the people, he knows them, he loves them. He prays to God and he said, God, should I stay here in the forest and be protected? Or should I go to Keilah and save the people from being massacred? And God answers him immediately. He says, go to the village of Keilah. You will save the people. God had appointed 40 men, 37 to be exact. They were called the Gibberim. They were the Navy SEALs of the day. God had appointed them to surround David. And these counselors of his told him, I don't care what God said. You stay here in the forest. You'd be so ignorant if you left the forest. And David, a second prayer, he said to God, the people you've given me have told me to stay. I'm confused. What do you want me to do? And God said to him, I want you to go to Keilah like I told you to go to Keilah. I want you to save the people. David goes to Keilah. No sooner does he go there and deliver the people than Saul finds out that he's in Keilah. Keilah was a walled city. It had gates around it. And Saul said, I'm going to trap him there and I'm going to kill him. David prays a third time. He says, God, sorry to bother you again. Can I stay in Keilah? Will the people and the soldiers in this town protect me because I saved their life? God says they won't protect you. They're more afraid of Saul than they are of you. They're going to turn you over to Saul. Get out of Keilah before it's too late. David prays a fourth time. He's in the desert of Ziph. And he's like Elijah when Ahab and Jezebel are chasing him. He's lying down in the desert. He says, God, i got no strength left. Just let me die. I've got no strength left. And the moment he is praying that prayer, God was talking to someone in King Saul's palace. He was talking to Jonathan, King Saul's son. And he said to Jonathan, David is praying to me right now, and you are the angel of mercy and grace that shall go to him. You shall go to him in the desert of Ziph, and you shall strengthen him in God. And that's exactly what happens. When you pray to God, he has any number of vehicles. God can come with his own deliverance and open up the waters of the Red Sea. God can send someone into your life at that moment as He did in this episode. God can have you listen to a song or a message or put a devotion in front of your eyeballs and all of a sudden your strength begins to return. There is a fifth time that David prays. 1 Samuel 23. When when Saul finds out he's in the desert of Ziph, he goes after him and David and his men move to a different desert, desert of Moan. There's a mountain in the desert. David climbs a mountain because he wants to see where Saul is and he realizes when he climbs a mountain that Saul is on the other side of the mountain. Saul has 3,000 soldiers. He sends 1,500 to the east, 1,500 to the west. They have trapped David David prays for a final time. He says, God, Red Sea, it's in front of me. Pharaoh's behind me. There's armies on either side of me. I have no chance of deliverance. And at that moment, you look at 1 Samuel 23, at that precise moment, 
messenger comes to Saul and he says, the Philistines have entered your land. While you're chasing David, the Philistines have entered your land. They are destroying your property and your people. And in that moment of time, he draws back his army. David is saved. I want to bring four points very, very, very quickly to your mind on this seventh week. Number one, when your circumstances are confusing, remember that God is still in control. It's easy to believe that God's in control when the sun is shining, you have money in the bank, good job, happy marriage, wonderful children, no health problems, and the future looks bright. But what will you say when your money runs out, your boss fires you, your children disappoint you, your health fails, and your friends desert you? Is God still on the throne? Is God still on the throne? For everyone we have studied the last seven weeks, you look at the life of Martin Luther, but for a week's time, is God still on the throne? The answer is yes. Secondly, when you're tempted to panic, turn to the Lord. Too many believers turn away from the Lord in time of trouble. Panic comes. Panic attacks come. The anxiety comes. And all you can do is fix on the darkness. When you're tempted to panic, you turn to Him. That is why He's always been there. Turn to Him. Number three, when you don't know what else to do, do God's will, even if it doesn't make sense to you. When you don't know what else to do, do God's will. It was before I came here, some 36 years ago. It was two weeks before her wedding. And she came and said, Pastor, I can't marry him. I've known him for six years, but I cannot marry him. There is something that is telling me not to step into marriage with him. I said, have you told your parents? She said, I want you to be there when I speak to them. I remember Holy Cross, 10 o'clock at night, we came into the sanctuary. She's on one side, I'm on the other side. And she's praying, Lord, deliver me from this confusion. Deliver me from this dilemma. Your mind is speaking to me, saying I should stay away from this marriage. And on the other side, I was praying as well. She said, how do I know? I said, Romans 14.23, if you have doubts about doing something, you ought to not to do it. Because the action is not of faith. If God is telling you not to enter into this marriage, then don't. She and I, the next day, went to her parents. They were so angry they left the church. For a time. Marriage never occurred. Three weeks later, he committed a murder. Death penalty was in effect at that time in the state of Kansas. Due to mitigating circumstances, he escaped that penalty. 
when you don't know what else to do, do God's will, even if it doesn't make sense at the moment. She got married. It was a year after I came here. She wondered if I'd fly down and marry her. I had a marriage up here, so I couldn't go down there. When you don't know what else to do, do God's will, even if it doesn't make sense. My last comment. When deliverance comes, give God the glory. Remember to give Him thanks when deliverance comes. Martin Luther, at the close of those moments of great grief, he would always do what David did at the end of any psalm. He would give God the glory. First ten verses, mighty anguish in Psalm 5, and all of a sudden, David is still. He knows that God is there. And he says, I will rejoice in the one who shields me with his arms. Seventh week of prayer, God be with you. God be with me. Lessons learned. lady came up to me last night. She was in tears. She said, Pastor, I can't thank you enough for that message. I just quit my job. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm in such anguish. My health is so disturbed by the job I've had for these past several years. And I said, God, I'm really confused. Make my path clear. She said, I quit my job two days ago. And when you said, when you're confused, trust God's will. God wanted me to hear that. He wanted my husband to hear that. Heavenly Father, take the power of your word. Take the blessing of prayer. Sink it deep down into our hearts so that even in moments of panic, our first thought is, I have my Lord and Savior. He shall come to me in his word, and I shall go to him in prayer. Such things we ask in his name. Amen. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.